turn with me to Matthew chapter 16 for tonight's study. One of perhaps the most famous missionaries was Dr. David Livingston. Uh, and when he started his trek across Africa, uh, he had 73 books in three big packs that weighed over 180 pounds. Um, but after the party had traveled across the deserts of Africa for 300 miles, um, Livingston realized it was just too heavy, too much burden for the, the, everybody that was there, the, the camels or whatever. And so he um, threw away some of the books because of the fatigue, um, uh, carrying all the bags and all that stuff. And, uh, but he continued on the journey, but by the end of the journey, uh, it, he, he had to throw away more and more books. It was just, it was a brutal trip. And, um, and he finally uh, was able to only keep one of all of his books and he kept, can you guess which one? Yeah, that was a good move. You keep the Bible, throw everything else out. That was a good move. Um, but, um, but all that to say, you know, um, I, I think life is kind of like that. Um, the Bible is what you and I need. All the other things are peripheral. Uh, you know, the things that we think we need or the things we think are important. But I love that we have the word of God that remains uh, as solid and as true as the day it was put together by the early fathers, fathers, the canon of scripture. I'm so thankful we have the Bible. And uh, that's why we give uh, real precedent um, you know, to the studying of the word of God. It's what we need. It's, what, it, what is life, it's what's life changing. Um, it's living and it's powerful. And that's why we focus on these. So I'm glad you're with us on this Wednesday night, uh, going through the scriptures together. And one of the things about going through the Bible, I always love to remind people is where we're at in the Bible is often where we're at in life. And so I see that too. And so uh, we're gonna see how that applies to us tonight. And we pick up where we left off last week. Last week, we saw the feeding of the 4,000, which was sort of the, um, the part two uh, of the, you know, the feeding of the 5,000. There was the feeding of the 5,000, and then there was the feeding of the 4,000. And, um, and now... Uh, here in chapter 16, the, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees step in to the mix. Um, and uh, it's, it's, uh, it says here in verse one of chapter 16, the Pharisees also with the Sadducees came tempting, desired him, uh, and tempting desired him that he would show them a sign from heaven. Um, interesting that these guys would come. Now we're seeing the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It seems that Jesus had more interaction with the Pharisees than he did the Sadducees. But, um, but interesting, you, you know, two different religious sects within Judaism that you should probably know about. Both groups um, honored Moses and the law of Moses, but they interpreted uh, things a little differently. And, and um, they were both um, fairly powerful politically. They were both political powerhouses as it turns out. But the Sanhedrin uh, there in Jerusalem uh, was composed of 70 members uh, of kind of what we would sort of say the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. This, that's what the Sanhedrin was there in Jerusalem. But it was made up of Pharisees and uh, Sadducees. The differences between the Pharisees and Sadducees are kind of hard to quantify today. You know, it used to be, you know, maybe you'd say one was more of a liberal, one was more of a conservative. But there, there was a little bit of that, but the conservatism looked different than the liberalism of today, um, you know, and what have you. Um, so, um, so all that to say, most of what we know about the differences of the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, you know, their writings. Uh, religiously, uh, the Sadducees were more conservative in the sense that, um, uh, of doctrine. Uh, and and they, they were conservative in the sense that they took a literal interpretation of the text of the uh, Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, the Torah. The Pharisees, on the other hand, uh, gave more of an oral tradition um, and, and sort of equal uh, authority uh, as the written word of God. Does that sound familiar? We've talked about, you know, traditions of man. Um, and the Pharisees got a little more tangled up in the idea of the traditions of men, more than the Sadducees. And, and uh, that's often the issue when the Pharisees are talking to Jesus, they're upset that he didn't keep the traditions and what have you. Um, but, um, but all that to say, the, uh, if the Sadducees uh, couldn't find a command in the Tanakh, uh, that was part of their writings. They, would, they, they say it's dismissed as just a man-made uh, tradition. Um, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees, their differing view of scripture, um, they argued pretty uh, vehemently against one another. They, they were actually kind of like enemies in some ways. Um, 
And, um, and one of the biggest things the Sadducees didn't believe in was life after death or the resurrection. That's why they were sad, you see, because they didn't believe in the resurrection. Can you imagine if all we had in this life was this life? Um, I mean, you know, um, that's, that's such a, um, a bleak outlook. And by the way, uh, depression is on the rise um, and, um, and people are more suicidal than ever and there's all kinds of emotional problems in our society and our culture. But one of those um, things that we're seeing is more of a nihilistic sort of attitude where uh, if, if this is all there is, then why do we even exist? And there, we're seeing that kind of permeate our culture and society and it's really caused there to be quite despair. Um, one of the greatest parts of being a follower of Jesus and a believer in Christ is we have the, um, the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When we die, we go to heaven as Christians and we have eternal life to look forward to. Um, but the person who's a secularist or someone who's an atheist or irreligious or whatever, if all they have is, is this life, no wonder people are depressed. Um, that's one of the things we need to remember is the message of the hope of, of life after death. And, um, but the Sadducees rejected the resurrection of the dead. We read that in Matthew 22, 23, Mark 12, 18 through 27. Um, so this idea is, is in the scripture that the uh, Pharisees did believe in life after death. Um, so um, they believe that when, you're, when you die, your soul and everything just perishes. Um, but, um, but the Pharisees believed in afterlife both for punishment, but also for eternal or for life or, or reward. Um, the the uh, Sadducees also rejected the idea of the unseen world, uh, you know, spiritual things. Whereas the Pharisees taught that the existence of angels and demons were all a part of a spiritual realm. So in some ways, you know, you and I might find ourselves lining up a little more with a Pharisee than we would with a Sadducee if we were back in those days. But, um, but um, the Sadducees, interesting enough, historically, they ceased to exist after AD 70. Remember when the Romans crushed Jerusalem? Uh, the Sadducees never recovered from that um, and they ceased to exist. But the, but the Pharisees were sort of responsible at that time uh, to compile, um, you know, works like the Mishnah, um, which is an important document with um, reference to the continuation of Judaism uh, beyond the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in AD 70. Um, and, um, and, and this way the Pharisees sort of would lay the groundwork for what we see today as largely modern day rabbinical um, Judaism. Uh, and the Pharisees are the one who kind of set that, that pace uh, back after the destruction of Jerusalem. So um, all that to say, the Pharisees, Sadducees, two very different sects, um, and they were very much at odds, which is interesting. The reason I go into all that is because what brings a Pharisee and Sadducee together? Often when you see enemies come together, it's because they have a common enemy. And that's what's going on here. Suddenly the Pharisees and the Sadducees approach Jesus because they're threatened by Jesus um, and the things that Jesus is saying. Um, and so they're, they're starting to you know, turn up the heat uh, and put pressure on Jesus. And that's exactly what they're doing here. What is the sign that, that, uh, you know, that, that, they, that Jesus could show them? That's what he says, that they come to tempt him, that, that he would show a sign um, and by the way, um, the rabbis uh, taught that miracles could be done by God, but also by Satan. Does that sound familiar? When they accuse Jesus, oh, he does all these miracles by the works of Satan or uh, you know, Beelzebub, as they would say. Um, so that, you know, it sounds a little weird to us. And, and Jesus' logical argument, how, why would Satan cast out Satan? Like, that's a pretty logical argument, I have to say, when Jesus said that. Because they said he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Um, but um, that, that was kind of their thing. But you have to understand, there is power in evil. In fact, remember in 2 Timothy 3.8, where um, Paul reminds Timothy of Janas and Jambres. Do you guys remember who they were? They were the two you know, magicians of Egypt. With what they withstood Moses. So do these also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds reprobate concerning the faith. Um, those guys displayed certain powers um, you know, whether they were sleight of hand or literal power, uh, either way, uh, Satan was behind Janus and Jambres. And, and Paul was warning Timothy of people who had the same kind of sort of powers that were being demonstrated there. And so these guys were sort of claiming that Jesus was doing the same thing. Um, in Matthew 12, 24, uh, we, we read this a few weeks ago, but when the Pharisees heard it, they said, this fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of the devils. Um, <clears throat> and so they were... They were trying to uh, get him stuck back then, <clears throat> tempting him and what have you. 
Now, that word that starts there in verse one, uh, they came tempting um, and tempting, desired him that he would show a sign. The word tempting is even more dastardly in the Greek. Uh, the Greek word is pirazzo. Um, and the word pirazzo uh, means to try, to, uh, to try whether a thing can be uh, done in a bad sense, uh, to test one maliciously, uh, craftily, to put the, uh, to the proof of his feelings or judgments. So there's kind of a malicious nature behind this, this word uh, on this idea of tempting or testing. There, it's, it's malicious. And, and so Jesus is now gonna respond to those guys. So they show up and then uh, they're looking for a sign. Um, and he says in verse two, uh, he goes on, he answered and said unto them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and lowering. Um, oh, ye hypocrites, you can discern the face of the sky, but ye, uh, can ye not discern the signs of the times? Um, a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign and there shall no sign be given unto it, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. Um, interesting uh, that Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. You can, you can tell the signs of the general times with even what the weather's gonna be tomorrow by looking out and seeing, is it, you, know, uh, you know, there's red skies or what, what's, the, what's the sky looking like? But he's saying, you guys can't even discern the times you're living in. Now you say, well, Brett, they weren't living in the end times. Well, Jesus didn't say end times. He was just said about the times. Um, question, should they been, have been able to discern those days as you and I should be able to discern these days? Um, you know, both have very much to do with Jesus. Um, we're looking for the second coming of Jesus, as it turns out. Uh, and there's signs of our times that we look for that. Well, in the same way, they had a bunch of signs that they could have been looking for and should have been looking for, but they missed it. Uh, and, and so, you know, like, we want a sign. And Jesus is like, uh, what about a babe being born in Bethlehem uh, with a star on high, a virgin birth, uh, one who would go to Egypt and then live in Nazareth? What about me, you know, riding into Palm Sunday, you know, on, on a colt of a donkey on the very date, Daniel chapter nine. Like Jesus could just go on and on about all the signs he showed them that were fulfillments of the Old Testament about him. Um, and and they, they missed those signs. Probably the most um, uh, radical one was the Daniel nine prophecy of when Jesus would ride into uh, Palm Sunday road. That was a radical sign to the very day when Jesus would ride into Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus wept and said, oh, Jerusalem, if you'd only known in this thy day, how would they have known the day? Daniel chapter nine. So they missed the signs. And so um, in some ways, I, I think we have to sort of, uh, we can almost superimpose what Jesus is saying about this adulterous generation, this seeking after a sign. Um, uh, in the same way uh, in our day, uh, the Lord's given you and me plenty of signs. Lord, show us a sign. Uh, that you exist, show us a sign that you care, that you're involved with humanity. Meanwhile, in 1948, Israel, after being scattered for 2000 years, becomes a nation again, just like the Bible says it would happen. Like that's never happened in the history of the world where a people group is scattered from their homeland, lost their homeland, uh, just like the Bible said would happen. It's called the diaspora. And then uh, to have the Jews suddenly the Zionist movement, but that the world goes, the Zionist movement is a horrible thing although it's this beautiful fulfillment, no wonder they hate it. It's a beautiful fulfillment of prophecy about the Jews that they would make their way back to the promised land, Israel, in the last days and become a nation. And not only that, become a prosperous nation. Uh, prophecy updates coming up Friday night. I, I, I'm gonna have to resist going into some of those topics. Uh, you know, uh, Israel right now is prospering like no other time in history, right now. It's kind of fascinating to see what's happening and, and uh, it's exactly what the Bible said would happen. But um, all that to say, um, but um, you know, I'm finding right now, uh, as it turns out, uh, the, the people of our, of our generation, of our day, are, we're starting to see a hostility toward people who are looking at the signs of the times more than ever. Um, you know, uh, you know, like, um, <laughs> like the evil servant of Matthew 24, 48, where it says, but... And if that evil servant shall say in his heart, my Lord delays his coming. A lot of the church is saying that right now. Eh, you guys have been saying the rapture of the church and the coming of the Lord and, and all this stuff. Um, I, one of the Prophecy Update guys that's out there that maybe some of you are aware of, he's a, he's a great guy, Tom Hughes, who does um, a, a really cool, uh, you know, 
prophecy update sort of thing. He's a pastor of a Calvary Chapel. But um, I found it interesting today, he was on the Drudge Report. He, he made the Drudge Report, uh, but maybe not in the best way uh, you might think. And of course, the Daily Star, that, um, that bastion of learning and a higher understanding and knowledge. Um, they, they said, doomsday preacher claims everyone being offended these days signals the end of time. Uh, let me read you just like a line. Uh, Pastor Tom Hughes is known for spreading his outlandish end time theories on the YouTube channel. Recently shared a 10 minute long video entitled The Collapse of Everything. Uh, in the video, which has gained more than 84,000 views, he delved into some of the supposed signs that Jesus is returning to earth and claimed that they would grow um, in intensity like childbirth as uh, we approach the end. Um, what a looney tune he must be. Oh, wait. <laughs> That's exactly what I say every Sunday. Uh, and by the way, uh, you know, it's funny how these people can make a pastor look really like, oh, some doomsday guy, wacko with, what's the word they use? Outlandish and all this stuff. Well, it's exactly what Billy Graham taught. Did you know that Billy Graham taught the rapture of the church and like all the stuff that we talk about, Billy believed in, although they all esteemed him back in the day as, you know, the, uh, you know America's pastor and the president's, he, was, he wasn't outlandish, but that's what they call Tom Hughes. I, 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 when I saw that, I thought, you know, this is awesome. Uh, like Tom's doing a good job. He must be doing a really good job uh, because look at what the world thinks about it. And I'm really, really encouraged. Well, bro, you shouldn't be, you, you know, you're next. Yeah, but, but, um, but remember what Peter said? Um, when, when people come scoffing and making fun of that, uh, you know, that's when, that's when the time is gonna be. Uh, as soon as the world starts really scoffing and mocking, uh, we can just know that, you know, when they're saying, where is the promise of his coming? You guys have been saying this stuff from the very beginning and blah, 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 blah. And they're just gonna, you know, come against that. Well, that's happening more than ever. And, um, and I love it because any good Bible teacher is gonna talk about end times and Bible prophecy. Uh, it's one fourth of all the Bible, at least one fourth of all the Bible. All the other pastors that avoid prophecy, they're avoiding one fourth of the Bible. Uh, is that really an honest uh, you know, preaching of scripture and teaching of scripture? I think not. If you leave out one fourth of it, I think you gotta probably fix that. Um, and, and, you know, I love being a Christian who anticipates the coming of the Lord. And even if the Lord doesn't come in my time, there's benefit of um, believing that he could. It's possible that he comes in our time. One of my favorite benefits is 1 John 3, 3, where it says, every man that hath this hope in himself or in him uh, uh, purifieth himself even as he is pure. When we have the hope, when you read the context of 1 John 3, 3, it's the coming of the Lord. When you and I have that hope in our hearts, it, there's a purifying effect on our lives. We don't go around messing around with sinful junk, but instead we're saying, man, how can we walk closer with the Lord? So um, uh, all that to say, a lot of Christians don't believe in literal Bible prophecy, and that's unfortunate um, because we're seeing Bible prophecy literally unfold right in front of our eyes, exactly like the Bible has said. And to, to, to not really understand or even take, I mean, you don't even have to be a smart person to see all the things the Bible says would happen in the last days and how easily they're unfolding in front of us. Um, it's not even a hard thing. Uh, I think it's almost funny because people are almost bored with things that we've been talking about. Uh, you know, the mark of the beast used to be really exciting. People will buy and sell without using money. Uh, and like everything, <laughs> yeah, it's happening in Switzerland and marks and ships under people's skin and people are doing that all the time. Like it's become so normal now, the things the Bible said would happen 2,000 years ago, the Bible said this stuff would happen. And it's coming to pass 100% accurately. Uh, I believe the rapture of the church, like Billy Graham, like Tom Hughes, like other you know, good solid Bible teachers is a real thing. It's 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18. That says, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, what are we supposed to do with those words? Comfort one another with those words. There's comfort knowing that, man, we have something to look forward to, to be taken up. The words caught up there is rapture in the Latin, uh, harpazo in the Greek. Uh, it's just great to know that we have the hope of Christ uh, taking up of his church. Now, um, uh, all that to say, um, you know, it's important to study the times that we're living in. And I think that's one of the things we should glean as we read about Jesus they missed it. They should have seen the signs of their times. They had, they had just as good a signs of, of Jesus coming in his first coming 
and just as many, maybe, maybe a few less prophecies. We have hundreds and hundreds of prophecies about the second coming of Christ. They had about 300 prophecies uh, about the first coming of Jesus. And so, you know, um, I think it's, it's um, important to keep your mind on, you know, looking forward to the rapture of the church and heaven um, and, uh, and, and just, you know, have the right mindset. Um, it's, there's an old saying, it's better to be headed in heaven than to be headed in the tribulation. Be beheaded uh, in the tribulation. Anyway, that's not a very funny joke. I thought it was, but anyway, um, uh, all that to say, uh, what's this whole thing about the sign of the prophet Jonah? Well, uh, let's, let's quiz you guys here for a second. Jesus in another passage uh, somewhere uh, said, uh, I'll show you one side if you destroy what? This temple or his body in what? Three days, I will raise it up again. So we know that, like you guys have heard that scripture. Jesus very clearly said, if you destroy this body in three days, I will, I will raise it up again. The one sign Jesus said I will give you is um, that I will go into the grave and three days later, resurrect from the grave. So then why is Jesus seemingly contradicting himself here? Well, this is the one sign I'll show you and it's the sign of Jonah. And then he walks away. What does Jonah have to do with the resurrection? Well, that's where you, you have to realize he was being a little cryptic there with these guys. Um, if you recall, there's a reason we've studied in previous chapters why Jesus never was super clear in some topics with some people. And it's because they would not believe. Remember, they would not, so they could not, so they should not believe. And that's what happened um, here. That's what's happening here. But for the believer, you remember the story of Jonah um, actually included three days in the belly of a well. And then uh, after three days, he was, you know, uh, barfed out on the beach and then he went and saved Nineveh and all that stuff. But Jesus is sort of using Jonah as a type or a picture. And it's not the last time he'll use jo Jonah as a picture uh, uh, and what have you. But he says, this will be the sign, the sign of the prophet jo Jonah. The ultimate sign of Jesus being who he claims to be is the resurrection of, um, of, of, uh, of, from the dead. That, that's the one sign, really. And Jonah is sort of the cryptic way of saying that same thing. Um, and by the way, Jesus would say, if you remember a couple weeks ago, Matthew 12, the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here. Um, the idea of Jesus being compared to Jonah is, is not unusual in the gospel. Um, but this is one of the things, the idea of um, Jonah being in the belly of the whale. Now, if you recall, Jesus said, even as Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so will the son of man be. Uh, where, where would Jesus be? Well, when he went to the grave, there's that whole amazing story of what he did while he was in the, in the tomb. And he, he, uh, the, before he ascended, what did he first do? Descended into what? The lower parts of the earth, which we would call Hades and Sheol. Uh, and, he, and there's a whole other thing that happened there. And that's all part of the Jonah sort of uh, uh, illustration here that we should know about. So this is really what Jesus is saying. He's, he's indicting these guys for saying they know how to tell the times, but, but the times they wouldn't know it if it hit them in the face. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. And so you guys are hypocrites asking for a sign when really there's signs all around you. Uh, but he said, this is the one sign I'm gonna give you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. And then he left, left them and departed. Um, but he'll be more clear on that uh, as he gets further. And to those that would be willing to believe and listen, he'll be extremely clear. Uh, and that's what I love about the Lord. Well, then it goes on in verse five and it says, um, and his, when his disciples were come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Doesn't that crack you up? The disciples make mistakes all the time. Um, I love the disciples for that because then when I make a mistake, I'm going, oh, at least I'm like, I like the disciples, you know? Uh, you know, they, these are guys that Jesus chose to be his guys, but they're kind of bumbling around a lot of the time. Oop, we forgot to bring bread, food. Um, then verse six, Jesus said unto them, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. And verse seven, they reasoned among themselves saying, it's because we've taken no bread. Now this cracks me up. Um, you know that when you're feeling guilty, oh man, I forgot to bring bread. And then Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Oh, I knew he was gonna be mad at us for not getting bread. Uh, but they're missing the point. Uh, they're missing the point. What I love about what Jesus is doing here is something that you moms and dads and people, we get to do, and that is using our circumstances to use as teaching moments. I feel like sometimes parents miss good moments where you can use for teaching. 
Um, you know, so in this case, uh, they said, oh, we forgot the bread. And Jesus says, oh, you wanna talk about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. It, it really is, is something he's just kindly, lovingly warning the disciples about the leaven uh, um, of the Pharisees. And we'll, we'll talk about what that leaven is here in a second, but he uses this as a teaching moment. Um, and, um, and I love this because we know Jesus is not gonna be uh, short for bread. Like Jesus has a way of making more bread if he wants it. So it's all gonna work out. But you know, that guilty conscience, oh no, he's mad at us for not bringing the bread. Well, it says, um, when, when Jesus perceived that verse seven, uh, verse eight, pardon me, which when Jesus perceived, he said to them, oh, ye of little faith, why reason ye among yourselves? Because you have, you have brought no bread. Do you not rem uh, yet understand, neither remember the five, uh, the five loaves uh, and 5,000 and how many baskets you took up? Neither the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I spake uh, it not to you concerning bread, that you should beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Then understood they how he, that he had bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but the doctrine of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees. So uh, they now go, oh, he was using that as sort of a, a object lesson. Uh, and the leaven of the Pharisees is the doctrine of uh, or the leaven of bread. It's, it's like the doctrine of the Pharisees. Um, and remember, we talked about leaven a few weeks ago, and I reminded you that leaven in the Bible is always typified as something negative. Um, and when, in that one verse we were looking at a few weeks ago, some people try to say leaven is a good thing in that scripture, but we look for expositional constancy and leaven is always sort of typified as something that's gone wrong or bad or literally sinful. And you could sort of superimpose that into this. When Jesus is talking about the doctrine of the Pharisees, when he calls it leaven, he's, he, you might say the sinful doctrine, the wrong doctrine, the doctrine that's amiss, off course, um, and we'll talk about doctrine in a second. By the way, remember last week when I was saying some commentaries try to say that the feeding of the 5,000 was the same story of uh, feeding the 4,000? Um, I, I love this. Uh, I, just, uh, I wanted to make sure and make this clear. Jesus said it was two different stories. So uh, he, those guys that try to make that argument that it was one story combined into, you know, or whatever, two stories combined into one, nope. Jesus said there was the feeding of the 5,000, then there was the feeding of the 4,000. I'll go with Jesus on this one. Always a good plan, by the way. <clears throat> but uh, all that to say, um, when, when, when you know, the Lord is um, having you go through things of life, you know, maybe you look at your electric bill and you can, you can tell your kids, oh, electricity is so expensive now and our electric bill is so much more than it was a few years ago and oh, you know, or, or you can say, hey kids, our electric bill, look at it. This is how much, you know, mommy and daddy have to pay every single month on our electric bill. But guess what? My God shall supply all of our needs according to his riches and glory. And use it as an opportunity not to complain or say, oh no, he's mad at us or whatever, but say, what, are we, what is the Lord teaching us? And what can we learn through various trials, troubles, difficulties? Um, and, um, and I like that. I like that Jesus is using it for an opportunity. And, and it seems like he does that all the time. Whenever Jesus and the disciples find themselves in a situation, Jesus is always instructing, uh, something we all can do. Now, this idea of doctrine, uh, the Greek word for doctrine is this fancy word didache, uh, which um, um, it means teaching uh, concerning something and the act of teaching or instruction. Um, so, so um, you know, the same extremes, by the way, of uh, legalism versus liberalism, uh, we see that same sort of uh, uh, tension in the, in the didache or uh, Didache of the, uh, of the church today. Um, and I think there's leaven that's crept into the teaching of the church today. We need to always kind of be careful about that we're teaching scripture and not let ourselves get drawn off course one way or the other. Um, but uh, that brings us really kind of that warning uh, that Jesus gives about the teaching or doctrine of the, of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Watch out for that, Jesus says. Um, verse 13. It says, then um, uh, when Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man am? And they said, uh, they said, some say thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. 
And Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, we went over this on Sunday, uh, just quick review, some big things that we learned. Of course, um, Peter declared Jesus to be the Christos, which means the Messiah, the anointed one. And he says, you are the son of the living God. Um, he's acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah of the Old Testament, God in the flesh. Um, this is a great uh, declaration of, um, of faith. Now, I didn't really wanna dive into this too much on, on Sunday uh, because I didn't wanna confuse the matter, but why did Jesus sort of acknowledge this as one of the great statements that ever been made. Like, it seems like Jesus' his rea reaction is like, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. But it seems that, that others have said this before. Um, now, um, you said, well, bro, you said they didn't really say it, but I think it has to do with, um, was, was it an emotional sort of response or an intellectual response? Let me just show you what I mean by this. Um, in John chapter one, if you're a, uh, looking at the harmonies of the gospels and what have you, there's sort of a timing thing here. But in John chapter one, verses 49 through 50, Nathanael answered and said to Rabbi, thou art the son of God, um, thou art the king of Israel. And Jesus answered and said to him, because I said unto thee, I saw thee in the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. What's going on here? When, remember Nathaniel was uh, sitting under the tree and Jesus said, I saw you were under the tree and Nathaniel freaks out. How did you know I was out there all by myself? And, uh, and Jesus, this, he makes this almost similar declaration that Peter made, but why is Jesus not impressed with this declaration versus Peter's declaration? Um, I think it has to do with Nathaniel just saw a miracle. So he just knee jerks into that emotional response saying, oh, you know, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. Um, but it seems to me like Jesus doesn't really acknowledge that he just made a great statement of faith. He just was emotionally reacting that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Do you see how Jesus is almost like diminishing what this guy said because it was more of an emotional response and not as much of an intellectual response. Uh, here's another one that's, that's like a little controversial. When did Peter first say this? Well, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter five, um, verse eight, it says, when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees uh, saying, depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. And the word Lord there would sort of imply that Peter knew who he was talking to. Uh, that word Lord, uh, meaning uh, sort of the, the Christ, the Messiah. Same thing happened with Peter in John 6, uh, 69. And we believed and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And uh, the timing on this could be uh, questioned and all this stuff with the harmony of the gospels. But why was this Matthew 16 time when Peter said, thou art the Christos, the son of the living God? Um, I think it had to do with the timing and it was more of an intellectual response more than just some reaction to miracles, or um, um, it, was, it was more just a simple intellectual faith saying, I believe, we believe. He's not responding to the storm being calmed. He's not responding to some leper being cleansed. He's just saying, this is who we believe you are. And um, I think that's kind of an important thing that uh, Jesus is sort of acknowledging this when Peter just is asked sort of intellectually. It's not that intellectualism is what's important, but to have just a, a, a faith with or without the miracles. The, the idea of miracles can sometimes mess up the whole, the whole thing. Um, you know, remember when Thomas was gonna believe only when he could see Jesus's holes in his hands and his feet and what have you. And then in John 20, 29, Jesus said to, to, to Thomas, you know, because thou hast seen me, thou hast believed. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Um, there's, there's a better thing when you just believe uh, by faith rather than having to see something. So th there does seem to be a link, by the way, and I'm just making a small point here, I guess, that um, the miracles, people said, thou art the son of God, but Jesus always was, yeah. But, but then when Peter said it more in just a moment of logical inter intellectual discourse, he said, you are the Christos, the son of the living God. And it wasn't a, a knee jerk a emotional thing. I think that might be what's going on here. Why it's like Jesus teach, it treats this like it was the first time anybody ever really said it with any great weightiness or value. So um, 
that's kind of some cool stuff in there. Um, other things, you know, um, you know, uh, we see Peter saying something correct, uh, and he got it from the Lord. Um, and then we see the name change. We saw that here in Matthew 16, uh, where we where we see Peter get the name uh, Little Rock. And and let's let's just kind of review that because that's important as we continue with the story. Um, he's called Petros. And the, there was the big confusion and church history was changed by a misinterpretation of this. When you look at this verse, it should say, um, uh, you know, if you were reading from the original Greek, it would look more like, and, and this I say to you that thou art Petros, and upon this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And if you kind of remember the word Petros is little rock, and then the, the word Petra is large rock or cliff. Um, and there's a difference. And the reason that's different is because um, the Lord's not gonna build his church on little rock. He's gonna build his church on the large rock. And what's the large rock? Right, Jesus. Uh, and that's all throughout the scripture. The rock is Jesus. And if you didn't get it on Sunday, make sure and know that these scriptures, these are just some great examples of the scriptures. Um, you know, like 1 Corinthians 3, 11, there's no other foundation um, that can, a man can lay than that which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation of the church. All throughout the Bible, Ephesians 2, 20, you know, um, it says that, um, you know, uh, we're built upon the foundation of the apostles, the prophets, and Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone of the building. He's the chief stone, the big stone, the cornerstone. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 4, of course, talks about how um, um, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them in the wilderness, and that rock that was in the wilderness was Christ. Um, and for, we talked about 1 Peter 2, verses four through seven, where Peter himself gives a commentary on who the rock is, and it's not him. It's the rock that would be rejected, the chief cornerstone that was laid up in Zion as Isaiah the prophet. Peter quoted from Isaiah, reminding us that um, the rock is Jesus. And in the Old Testament, it's all throughout the scriptures, the rock in the wilderness, Daniel chapter two, the stone that would be cut out without hands that would become a mighty kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. It's all about um, the rock. Now, um, one thing you know, that uh, we, we didn't really talk much about is um, one of the reasons I can, I, I, there's so many ways I think I can prove that Peter was not the first pope. Um, especially when you look up what papal rules and laws um, the Catholics came up with as time went by. Um, do you know what Catholic, Catholic doctrine means when the Pope speaks ex cathedra? Do you guys know what that is? That, that means that the, the Pope is supposed to be infallible. Hello, did you hear what I just said? Um, the, the Pope, when he speaks ex cathedra, is preserved from the possibility of error on doctrine. That's what they say. I'm reading this from the Catholic uh, writings. This charism is the supreme degree of partic uh, participating in Christ's divine authority. Um, they put the Pope in, in, in sort of, when he gets into that mode of speaking about things that are spiritual or the, the, the scriptural things that he says, he's speaking ex cathedral, cathedra, and he's basically speaking in Christ's divine authority. Um, that's a pretty heavy thing for any one guy to bear. Um, but the reason like I want you to see that is that if, if Peter was the first Pope, how did he do on that? Well, Brett, he's always saying stupid stuff. Yeah, exactly. But here's what they would say. Well, do you remember after Jesus breathed on Peter, you know, then he was filled with the Holy Ghost and preached the sermon and 3,000 people were saved. Um, from that point on, Peter was, you know, uh, more of that ex-cathedra thing. Well, if you keep reading the story, did Peter still make mistakes? He sure did. Um, in fact, keep your finger here and flip over to Galatians with me. Um, I wanna show you an example of this. Um, I'm not trying to bash the Catholics, but if you're a Catholic, I'd like you to, to um, uh, take an honest look at the scriptures. And, and, and um, you know, uh, like I said uh, a few weeks ago, the Catholics have done some really good things. The Catholics have done some really, really bad things. The Protestants have done really good things and the Protestants have done really bad things. My goal is to say, let's get back to the Bible because I cannot defend church history. Church history has got some ugliness on both sides of the, of the fence, um, a lot of ugliness. But anybody who kind of stuck to the Bible, well, that's, that's the word of God is, is infallible, not the Pope. Uh, and that's really important to understand. So, so like in, in Galatians chapter two, let's pick it up in, in verse 11. Paul the apostle is gonna correct Peter the Pope. Check it out. In verse 11, but when Peter was come to Antioch, I withstood him to the face uh, because he was to be blamed. For before that, that certain came from James, he did eat with the Gentiles, but 
Um, but when they were come, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing them which were of the circumcision. And the other Jews dissembled likewise with him, inasmuch that Barnabas was also carried away with their dissimulation or hypocrisy. What was happening? Peter was hanging out with Gentiles because remember the Lord told him to hang out with Gentiles. But then when the Jews would come around, he'd stop hanging around with Gentiles and say, man, I, yeah, I don't hang out with those people. And he was being a hypocrite in that. Um, but verse 14 and when I saw that they walked not uprightly according to the truth of the gospel, which is for the Gentiles too, I said unto Peter before them all, if thou being a Jew livest after the manner of the Gentiles and not as do the Jews, why compellest thou the Gentiles to live as do the Jews who, were, um, who, uh, who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles? So um, he goes on knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Um, even we have believed in Jesus that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by works of the law for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So Peter was sort of dabbling in sort of knowing they're saved by grace, hanging out with Gentiles, but then the Jews would come around and he sort of snapped back into the legalism of Judaism. And Paul would say, that's hypocritical, Peter. You gotta choose what you're gonna do here. Are you believing in just faith in Christ, saved by grace through faith? And uh, Peter would adjust his behavior based on what Paul scolded him on here. Um, and, and I like that. I think, by the way, Peter's a great guy. I'm not diminishing Peter. Um, but what I love about Peter is he was willing to say, you're right, Paul, and I need to change my behavior. Like he was correctable. Uh, that's the problem with the popes is when they started saying stupid stuff, nobody could correct them. Um, and it really hurt the church history uh, for, for millennia. It's, it's caused problems. So the only person that's infallible is Jesus. Are we clear on that one? I hope you understand that. That's a really easy. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. That, Paul told Timothy that. Like, there's so many really clear things. Um, you know, what's funny is, um, the, you know, when, when the Catholics call their, you know, their leaders or priests sort of their father, um, what does the Bible say about calling someone a father? Anybody? Hello? Don't call anyone father. Uh, it says it right there in the Bible. Look it up. Like, it's not, this is, this is I love how easy the Bible is. Um, and there's a reason, by the way, in the church history that the, the Catholics chained the Bible to the pulpit and, um, and they, they left it there because they didn't want the, they said it's not for the average person to read. But, it, um, but I, think, I, I think initially, oh, and by the way, they didn't have a lot of manuscripts of the Bible back in those days and they would get stolen. So they, they'd literally chained them to the pulpit. Um, but as Martin Luther came on the scene, he said, man, uh, everybody should be able to read the Bible. And you know, when the printing press came on the scene, uh, having Bibles in people's hands became really doable. And it really turned the Catholic Church uh, in very defense mode because suddenly people were reading the Bible. And the Protestant Reformation was uh, large and in charge at that point on because people were able to say, yeah, you guys have got off course and you wouldn't let us read the Bible. Uh, once we can start reading the Bible, and the Bible's for all of us. It's for every single one of us. We have the Bible. Um, and so we need to make sure and not let that, you know, uh, allow us to be duped uh, into all that. Um, but this is where, you know, the argument raged. Now let's go back to Matthew chapter 16, because after they said, you know, verse uh, 18 says, Peter became the Pope. Uh, and, and, and that's not what happened. What actually happened is upon this rock, Jesus, the declaration that Peter made, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's that, that Jesus is the, the rock that the church is built upon and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The church uh, of Jesus Christ. And um, um, uh, notice what it says there in verse 19. We, we touched on this on Sunday, but we really didn't dive into it. He says, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Um, now, this was not just given to Peter. Um, uh, and, and, and by the way, I, uh, I mentioned on Sunday, just in quickness, that the keys are actually given to the church, the ecclesia that's mentioned there in verse 18. But I would also say, you could accurately say, it's almost like Jesus was looking up, um, at the disciples, all the disciples, not just Peter, when he says, you know, I will build my church uh, upon this rock and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee, disciples, you disciples, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Um, and, and so the Catholics, they made it look like it was Peter who got the keys. And, and by the way, if you go to the Vatican, you see Peter and he's holding the keys. 
Uh, he's got those keys being held there. Um, and uh, it, he has kind of a stressed out look on his face. Uh, I feel bad for the poor guy. I'd be stressed out too if they thought I was near deity. Um, but uh, no, um, the disciples were all given the keys, um, which would ultimately be to the church of Jesus Christ. Um, the keys uh, the, uh, to the kingdom uh, of heaven and hell. Um, and that's kind of important. Uh, what does it mean to have the keys? Um, keys are that which opens and closes and locks and unlocks. And um, we have the keys because we have Jesus and Jesus is the one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. Um, whether you go to heaven or hell is dependent on what you do with Jesus Christ. Um, and so that's kind of an important part of this. Um, I love being a part of the church of Jesus Christ because we get to unlock those doors. You know, you and I should all be locked in hell for all of eternity, but because of the keys of the kingdom that Jesus gives to the church of Jesus Christ. You and I can preach the gospel, share the love of Christ, and it opens a door that was once locked that no one could have unlocked apart from Jesus. Um, Jesus says, you know, it's like Jesus got the keys to the car and then he tossed them over to us and said, okay, God bless you. Uh, and that's what we have, the church. We are the ones with the keys um, and we get to use it. We get to use the keys by saying, repent, accept Jesus and be saved and you get to go to heaven. You have the keys. Um, what a cool thing. Now, um, in sort of interesting fashion, as Jesus would often do, verse 20, then charged his, his disciples that they should tell no man that Jesus was the Christ. Um, this is one of those mysterious times where Jesus seems to tell people, don't tell anybody about what we just talked about. Why? I always like to ask that question. Why would Jesus want this to be sort of kept a secret? Well, um, in this case, let me give you just a few possible answers. Why not tell everyone that Jesus was the Christ? Um, well, just, just as a Bible student, you know, we're all told to tell everybody now, right? Let, let's just agree on that. We're, we're going out and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's now. But why then? I've got a few um, theories that we could kick around. Number one, the resurrection would be the ultimate proof of this claim. Um, when, and, and that's what Jesus said, the sign of Jonah in a few verses earlier, or later, or like in the Gospel of John, when he said, if you destroy this body, I will raise it up in three days. The resurrection would be proof positive that he was the Christ. Um, it was Matthew Henry, if you have his commentary, he says this about that. He said, great truths may suffer damage by being asserted before they could be sufficiently proved. Uh, let me read that again. Great truths may suffer damage by being asserted before they can be sufficiently proved. Um, maybe Jesus was saying, let's keep this under wraps until after I die and raise up from the grave the sign that I'm gonna give to all of humanity. Then you can just let it rip. Uh, let people know that I am the Christos, the Messiah. Um, so that's one theory. Um, the resurrection would be proof of his claim. Number two uh, reason maybe why Jesus told them not to tell anybody he was the Christ. Um, it was too late. He knew it was too late for the nation to respond to his offer as Messiah. Like Jesus knew that he wasn't going to be their king at that moment. He, he knew that his second coming would be the time when he would be the Messiah that they were all hoping for. Um, and that's kind of an important thing. Uh, no reason to extend the offer when it's already sort of rejected by the Jews. Uh, don't waste your energy on them yet. And now there's coming a time where the Jews will be turned and see that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's gonna be after the rapture of the church. Romans 11, 25 and 26 tells us that. Third possibility, um, number three, there would be just uh, knowledge of him. Uh, there would be just enough knowledge of him, um, uh, which isn't enough. In other words, they would say, oh, he's Jesus the Messiah, and they'd know about him. But perhaps Jesus wanted more than that from people, not just to have people know about him, but to know him intimately, to have a heart knowledge, not just a head knowledge. Um, and then there's this uh, other and fourth and final, and this is probably the most likely one out of all the things I'm suggesting here, but when Jesus used this phrase over and over again, mine hour has not yet come. Um, and his hour would come when he would go to the cross and be crucified, die on the cross. Um, once that hour would come, then it was all ready to go. But there was several times Jesus would do miracles and they'd say, we wanna make him king. Mine hour has not yet come. Um, you know, and even told his mom that when she said, do something here at the wedding, mine hour has not yet come. Um, there's a time where Jesus will be glorified and he just knew it wasn't that time. My, mine hour has not yet come for that. So <clears throat> these are possible reasons why Jesus said, yeah, let's keep the Christ thing on the hush hush for now. Uh, and that's what, that's what Jesus said there. So 
Verse 21, this is a radical verse. Uh, it says, from that time forth began Jesus to show his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the, uh, the elders, the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Like uh, this is so much packed into this verse, uh, um, but it sort of goes on in the narrative and then you read on and it's like the disciples just kind of glibly go on with the little happy story of the gospel. And, and it seems a little weird to me. Um, until I've lived some life, I, I'm starting to understand why, because you, you hear in this verse and you think, why did the disciples not know exactly what was going on when Jesus went to Jerusalem? Because do you get a sense the disciples were a little disheveled when the Jerusalem situation started happening, when Jesus was persecuted, the disciples scattered and Peter denied Jesus and uh, three times. And, and then, you know, they, they went and crucified him and they all the disciples, well, we're gonna go fishing. And, and like, like the whole thing seems like the disciples, it's like they never heard verse 21. Um, and my answer to that is they never heard verse 21, even though Jesus told it to them many, it says many times, it says from that time forth, Jesus began to show his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and uh, the elders, chief priests, scribes, and be killed and raised again the third day. That's very specific. But the disciples, have you ever been told something that seems a little bit sensational or um, maybe even a little bit outlandish and you just kind of listen to somebody say it and you just kind of go, hmm. And you go, what in the world are they talking about? But you walk away and you kind of forget about it. Like that's human nature right there. And that's what I say about the older I get, the more I understand what might have happened here. The disciples are like, we're following Jesus. We gave up our jobs. We left our fishing nets in Galilee and we've been traveling around with Jesus for three years. What did he just say? Hmm, I don't get it, but whatever. Uh, let's get back to going to the work of the kingdom and Jesus. And come on now, what are we doing next, Jesus? Forget the death thing and, and the rising from the grave. I don't get that, but, but what are we doing next? You know, It's almost like the disciples just didn't get it. But it would be after Jesus would do all these things and Jesus would raise up from the grave, the disciples were going, oh, this is what he was talking about. And I, I have to say, I recognize that in human nature, in myself, but also in people, that people just, we don't always have ears to hear things that are shocking, but true. Things that are powerful and meaningful, but we don't get them. And when we don't get them, we tend to just dismiss them. And I think that's what happens here with the disciples. Um, maybe they thought, oh, he must be speaking figuratively or talking about somebody else. Or, um, um, By the way, um, there is something I've got to say. Um, there was one group that seemed to be more dialed in than the disciples when it comes to the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Which group would I, what do you think that is? The women. It was the women. Um, I think the women were, were more dialed in. It was the women that went to the tomb. It was the women who got the first news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think there's actually a reason for that. Uh, and because uh, I kind of I kind of gave a hard word the other night about the uh, the, la the lady that was putting leaven uh, in the bread. Remember that? If you don't want to remember that, you don't have to. But um, but I got to say also one of the things I love about I think women are more open to spiritual things. Like there's a there's a thing in the heart of a woman that's different than the way men are. Men are kind of you know sometimes I think we're wired a little more and I'm just using great generalizations here, but we're, we're wired a little more logically. And I think when we hear something that's a little bit crazy like this, you're gonna do what? Go to Jerusalem and die? Yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, let, let's go fishing. Um, but the women were kind of like, okay, we're gonna tuck that away. And then when it all came down, it seemed like they had a better, uh, they were dialed in a little more on these things. And I, I love that part of, of the women the role of women in the church of Jesus Christ. I think there's a sensitivity to spiritual things. And if you couple that complementary with the, the, the solid you know, fence of doctrine that the men are supposed to put around the church to keep things on the, on the right path, if you couple those things together, it becomes a very beautiful church of Jesus Christ. I think it really completes the picture. Um, the disciples needed the ladies in the resurrection story because without that, I think they might've still been fishing up in the Sea of Galilee. Anyway, that's a whole other story. Um, so, um, you know, um, all that to say, Jesus will repeat this again and again and again. In our, uh, in, in, in the, even in the Gospel of Matthew, we're gonna kind of hear this uh, where he's gonna speak about 
um, his resurrection. In fact, if you wanna jot them down just for interest, uh, he's gonna repeat as, that he was gonna die and ra- raise up from the grave. Uh, in the next chapter, a couple times, Matthew 17, nine, Matthew 17, 22 and 23, um, Matthew 20, 18 and 19, and Matthew 20, 28. It, over and over, Jesus is gonna give him a heads up. Here's what I'm doing. Here's where I'm going. Here's what's gonna happen in Jerusalem. But for some reason, they just kind of are a little thick on getting what's, uh, what's gonna happen. Maybe part of the problem is the next verse. Maybe they heard it, but they were in denial. They're like, that's not gonna happen. Are you kidding me? No, that's not gonna happen. See, that's what Peter does. Check it out. And we looked at this briefly on Sunday. It says in verse 22, then Peter uh, took him and began to rebuke him saying, be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Um, What Peter said was an abomination. I hope you understand that. Uh, Bless Peter's heart. We talked about this on Sunday. He said something really good. He's probably feeling his Cheerios, kind of like, ha, ha, I'm the smartest of the disciples because I just said the whole, you know, declaration of Jesus the Christos, and Jesus gave me a new name. So I'm gonna step in again with my great wisdom and say what Jesus said, not so, Lord, you know. And then Jesus says, get thee behind me, Satan. Um, what if Jesus didn't go and die? If, if Jesus didn't do it and did what Peter said here, we'd all be going to hell right now. Are you kind of glad Peter's word didn't come to pass? Like, I'm really thankful that, that um, and, and by the way, sometimes, you know, you say, well, Jesus spoke such strong words. Well, he's speaking against the temptation that the devil is using Peter to speak, um, it seems. And he's speaking with power and with authority and strong words may just be what sometimes we need. Um, I, I worry that sometimes we're into too much fluffy words. Jesus didn't fluff his words around. And in this case, he, he turns to Peter and says, get thee behind me, Satan. Like that's a pretty strong word right there. Um, and I think we sometimes need to make our yes be yes and our no be no. Jesus is a great example of that. But um, imagine this, you know, here is Peter who who by the spirit of God and the father in heaven revealed that uh, he was the Christos, the son of the living God. But in the next second, he can be be deceived by Satan and say something horribly wrong. Um, And I think we need to remember that in our own experience as well. You might say things that are wise and good. You might have a moment of truth come out of your mouth but be really careful. Just because you did it once doesn't mean you'll be able to recreate that. I have to say that uh, because I think we, we are a culture that loves to give our opinions and we love to impart great wisdom to everybody um, and uh, talk about what they should or shouldn't do or what our opinion is and stuff like that. And I, I think we've gotten ourselves into all kinds of trouble thinking we know what's best for each other or what other people are supposed to do. Um, I think in my counseling over the years, it's changed. Probably the greatest change um, is for me just to be quiet and listen a lot. Um, I'm listening more and saying less. I really think that's part of what I'm doing because I, I think maybe I've said too much sometimes and you're trying to help people and your heart is right, but I think Peter's heart was right. He just didn't wanna see Jesus die and you gotta give it to him for that. But he was dead wrong about that. You know, I think of Isaiah chapter 38 where Hezekiah found out he was gonna die. And so the, the scriptures say he cackled like a bird, you know, just crying out to the Lord, chirp, 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 chirp. He was so sad about dying and, and he says, Lord, please. And the Lord says, okay, okay, I'm gonna give you 15 more years. And those 15 years of Hezekiah's life were horrible. The worst years of his life. He should have kicked the bucket earlier. Well, Brody would have died. Yeah, but remember for a believer, that's a good thing. Going to heaven, that's a win right there. But Hezekiah lived, and, and it was during that time he, he had a son named Manasseh, which was the worst, most evil, the longest reigning king in the history of Israel uh, was Manasseh. Uh, didn't he reign for over 50 years uh, as one of the most wicked kings? And that happened because Hezekiah stayed alive. Um, the Lord knew what he was doing. And sometimes when we hit trouble and trials and difficulties, we think we know it's best. We say, not so Lord, like Peter, that shouldn't have happened. That should not happen. That's a bad thing. So don't do it. And the Lord's like, you don't know what you're talking about. Peter had no idea what he was talking about. And had Peter's idea been fl- flourished or been you know, promoted, we'd have all been doomed to hell. So thank the Lord for that. I'm thankful that Peter's word didn't come to pass. Well, Verse 24, it goes on. It says, then said Jesus unto his disciples, 
If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever shall lose his life for my sake shall find it. Again, Jesus is taking the conversation where Peter says, not so, Lord, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna let that happen, you, know, you dying and stuff. But Jesus is now gonna teach him a deeper meaning with all that. He's gonna say, oh, Peter, you don't like the idea of dying? Well, guess what? Um, if any man will follow me, you're gonna have to take up your cross and follow me. And if you're trying to save your life, like you just suggested, Peter, then you're gonna lose it. But if you're gonna lose your, your life for my sake, you'll find it. This is that irony of um, trying to gain life and lose life. This is something Jesus would talk about all the time. You know, um, many people, by the way, interpret this verse, uh, let him deny himself like an ice cream or pizza or deny yourself of stuff, um, of some luxury down here on earth. Uh, but what this verse is actually saying is let him deny himself. You understand that? That's important to understand. He's not saying deny stuff. He's saying just deny yourself. Um, you know, you already know um, that, that that's the hard, hardest person to deny is yourself in this, in this world we live. Um, and, uh, you know, to deny myself dessert, that's hard enough. But to de deny myself just, just is difficult indeed. And that's what the Bible here, that's what Jesus is saying. To deny myself is to put self out of the picture and put Christ in the place of self, if you can sort of imagine that. Um, and that's this idea of taking up his cross and following me. Um, and, and this is another error I think people make is take up Jesus' cross. No, uh, you know, it's, it, Jesus says, forever will save his life shall lose it. Pardon me, verse 24, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Um, you know, and, and I think we're not to take up the cross of Christ. Jesus was the only one who could bear the cross of the sins of the whole world. But in the same way, we will take up our cross uh, there's a cross for you and there's a cross for me to bear. And what is that cross? Only the Lord knows. And it's for the person who's gonna follow Jesus. So take up your cross and follow Christ. That's kind of what we're told here. And then, you know, letting go of your life for Jesus' sake. What, a, what an important notion. Um, you know, it's funny when Jesus says, you know, whoever tries to gain this life or save this life will lose it. Whoever will lose this life for my sake will find it. This is one of the most proven statements ever. You can see it in the wealthy. The wealthiest people in the world, are they saving their life or losing their life? And it's really an interesting thing. Some of those miserable people on this planet are very, very wealthy people who have seemingly gained what we would think of as life. Um, but when you give up that life for the sake of Christ, um, then you can gain life. And, and it's one of those, those things that goes against your, your sort of your, your grain because our grain is evil and sinful. Our flesh but uh, you gotta you know, um, deny yourself, uh, lose your life. This is all part of what Jesus would teach instead of trying to save it. Well, verse 26, for what, what is, is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Your soul um, you know, is that part of you that lives on forever. And it's the part of you, the inner part of you, that's, it's like the software that keeps going. Um, what you think and what you feel and, and all that stuff, the, the part that makes you you. Um, but you know, if you lose your soul for all of eternity, that's a problem. So Jesus is saying, this is what's at stake, the idea of denying yourself and following Jesus versus living for yourself. You'll lose yourself. For verse 27, the son of man shall come in the glory of his father with his angels. And then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now, Jesus is gonna say another irony here. Um, and I'm gonna posture this and set it up because this is one of the most wrongly and misunderstood scriptures in all the Bible that we're about to read. So Jesus says in verse 27, speaking of the Son of Man coming in his glory um, of his Father and his angels, and then he'll reward every man according to his works. That's the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. Are you guys with me on that? That's a pretty glorious verse right there. But then it says, verily, I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death, until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, Brett, that, that's where Jesus made a mistake. Did Jesus make a mistake here? Now, now here's what's interesting is, is um, some people in a uh, you know, very surfacey reading of scripture, I can see why some people say, well, see, Jesus was wrong here. He didn't know what he's talking about. 
But this is one of the things you can do if you're clumsy reading the Bible, you'll miss things that are very much nuancy and, and very much um, things that Jesus would say that were very almost seemingly contradictory. This is, he's in the same vein where he'd say, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. If you wanna be great, you gotta become a slave. If you wanna be a slave, you know, like, like it's, it's um, there's so many uh, dichotomies and, and paradoxes and all this stuff that Jesus says. Well, this is kind of one of them. He talks about his coming, his kingdom in verse 27. And then, he, and then he says, but some are standing here implying maybe the disciples, some of the disciples, some of the disciples. That's what he says. There's some, not all, but some standing here um, will not taste of death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. So what is the answer to this idea? Because all the disciples are dead now and Jesus' kingdom hasn't come. What's the answer? We will answer that next week. <laughs> because, because the answer is in Matthew chapter 17. The answer is there. So you're just gonna have to wait. <laughs> well, Lord, we are so thankful. We do look forward to that time where you come in your kingdom. And Lord, when we get to... Um, um, be with you for all eternity, Lord. That's, uh, that's a thing that we can't even imagine or comprehend. But until then, Lord, I pray that we would um, take these words and learn, Lord, and glean from, from your, your words of, of the scriptures here, Lord. And um, we found so many of this to be true just by experience. The more we try to gain in this life and try to live for our lives, we find ourselves losing it, Lord. It's so true. Your word is true. But when we lose our life for your sake, um, we, that's where we find it. Um, Lord, I pray that all of us would learn that um, irony uh, early in, this, in our existence, uh, that we wouldn't strive so much for the things of this earth, but Lord, that our affection would be set in heaven, things above, not on things of this earth. Give us the eternal perspective, Lord. And, and I thank you, Lord, for this chapter. And, and um, as Peter uh, made that great declaration, I pray that we would make that same direct declaration that you are the Christos, the Messiah, that you are our Lord. And we, we believe, Lord, just ex exactly as Peter, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Um, so in light of that, Lord, may we live for you. Um, I pray that we wouldn't be caught up in this world and its ways, but have a heart to follow you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Bless these, your people who put in time tonight in this chapter in Jesus' name, amen.